Would you open your Bibles, please, to Joshua chapter 3, where uh, walking through the book of Joshua. And if you could overlay uh, the Christian life on top of, of this book, you, you might describe the book this way. Joshua chapter 1 would sound like an invitation to the life in Christ. Uh, the promise is there. Be strong and courageous. I will be with you. That's this invitation. And then Joshua 2, you might describe as counting the costs of the Christian life. As Rahab sort of looked out with, well, what, what other option do I have if I want to live? Uh, and she turned to the Lord. Joshua 3 and 4 stand together to represent maybe the act of crossing from uh, into the promise with the Lord. So that might be how we think about this this morning, is uh, crossing over from, from a life where we're wandering to a life of promise with God. That might be how it overlays. And the idea that's going to be surfacing uh, towards the end of this uh, reading today is one of remembering, how to re- properly remember something. So I want to start with, uh, by thinking of a camera. Um, photography has really changed ver- drastically in my lifetime. Uh, so nowadays, it's very, very easy to take a picture. And we do. We take pictures all the time now. I mean, you don't ever pause to think about, do I have enough film? Or do I want to spend the money to develop this picture? Is this picture worth spending the $2 to develop? We don't ever think about that. We go, ha, click, forward, send, post, whatever. We, it's, it feels free, right? It's traveling in the land of already paid for. And so... We send things, and in fact, I think we take so many pictures nowadays because of it. I wonder, do we ever look at them again? You ever find that? Like, do I, am I ever going to come back to look at this, this massive amount of pictures? Whereas, if I just kind of go back to, towards my, uh, my childhood or my pre-adult years, you had 10 exposures in your camera, or 12, right? 12 or 24, I think that was the numbers. If you spent a lot of money, you'd have 48. Those would be always the reels I'd ruin, you know, because I'd, I'd, uh, I'd open it or it would sit in the camera for three years or whatever. But you would be so careful about, is it, am I really going to take a picture of this thing? You're at Niagara Falls and you're thinking this is worth three pictures because of the way film was and, and, and how, it, how careful you were to mark things. So, in an earlier time, only things that were important got captured by film. If you go to even an earlier time, just as film was arriving, you see families who are assembled for a portrait and they're not even smiling, you know. They have the stern demeanor as though this might be the only living record of their existence is this picture, you know. And she's in her wedding dress and and it's it's the one picture of their life. Well, how do you remember something in an age before film? How would a people, how would a family mark something as, we really need to return to this. We really need to come back to this. 
in a time before you could open up a photo album and kind of grin and laugh. But go before that, before that, before there was that technology. How does, how does a people hold on to something? That's what's going to be here this morning is something's going to happen that's so important. And the Lord is going to say something he does not often say. But he's going to say it about this. He's going to say, this moment, you need to remember this moment. And we're going to kind of investigate why. So let's look at the third chapter. <clears throat> I, I am going to do read most of chapters 3 and 4. So giddy up. It's just, I don't want to skip a lot of it. I might skip some of it. But um, it's an important point in the, in the time of Israel. So... Here's chapter 3. It says, When Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. And at the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know where you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. So they have been living in this area called Shittim, or your Bible might say the Acacia Grove. They've been living there. And we see here in the text, the Lord uh, makes them break camp and they travel a little bit farther, not a lot farther, okay? Just a little farther to what feels like the banks of the Jordan River. That they're, he's putting them at the water. And he's not putting them at the water where there's a place to cross, okay? The ford of the Jordan is significantly farther north. So it's not a place where they can cross. He's just putting them at, at the river. There's no bridge there. There's no road there. There's no way across there. But he's putting them there, and he's making them camp there. And then there's this call in the, in the camp which says, Watch for the, the Ark of the Covenant. It's this phrase, the Ark of the Covenant of God. And this phrase is going to surface all throughout this story. This whole story wants you to be watching the Ark of the Covenant. It's a, like a, a really close, careful reading. is a reading that it's, at least is grabbing your mind's eye and just constantly tracking where the Ark is and what it's doing. Watch for the Ark. Some of you may not know what the Ark is, or you might have seen an Indiana Jones movie once, and that's sort of like the limit of your religious education about the Ark. Uh, the Ark was a box. It was an ornately de- designed box commissioned by the Lord. And inside this box, it had a lid, and inside this box there were three things. Uh, the first thing was the staff of Moses uh, that he used, or the staff of Aaron, depending on how you want to call it. The second was the jar of manna. Uh, that they kept to, to remember the provision of God. And the third thing was the tablets upon which the law was written that God had given them, representing the covenant. So you had three things in the ark. You had evidence of God's power, evidence of God's provision, and the evidence of God's truth. That sort of represents what God intends for us. Is God has the power to save, 
the rod. God has the loving care and willingness to provide. So God does big things for us. He's powerful in big things for us. And God is powerful in little things, right? Provision are the things you daily need. Same God. Come to that same God for that. And God has designed the way of life for you, the code of life, the way in which you ought to walk. That is Yahweh. And on the top of this box, there was something they called the mercy seat, which was where the Lord, when the ark was in the tabernacle, where the Lord would appear, make his presence manifest to communicate with Moses. And that, that sat on top. So you might say the power, the provision, and the truth of God sort of come together to culminate the presence of God. And that's the ark. I thought about showing you a picture of it, but you're not allowed to see it. Um, you know, you go online and everybody draws it. The truth is none of us would have ever seen it. Ever, none of us would have seen it. And when it travels, it doesn't travel seen. It travels unseen. It would be covered. So the people of Israel would have never, ever actually seen the ark. But it's God's presence. And he's saying, watch for it. Watch. And this time he says something interesting. He says, listen, don't, don't be close to it. Don't get all close to it. Keep some distance, like a kilometer of distance, over a half mile. Put a half mile between you and the ark. And some people say it's because it's so holy. I, it is a holy item. I don't, I, or, I'm not saying that's entirely wrong. I'm saying that's not the reason the Bible gives for the distance. The Bible says, keep your distance. Why? Because God is leading you to a place they've never been before. That's what it says. In other words, uh, don't crowd up on it, but rather put it far enough in front of Israel so that all of Israel can see where God is taking them. That's the thought. The thought is that you're not traveling and following the head in front of you, but rather all of the people of Israel are being guided by the ark. That's the thought. Let's read a few more passages here. Let's read uh, 6 through 13. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, Command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant. When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take twelve men from the tribe of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing. And the waters coming down from above shall stand up in one heap. 
the Lord here says, I'm going to exalt you like I exalted Moses. The picture is not so much that he's making all of this about Joshua, but rather he's aligning Joshua with himself so that people will say, just as God was with Moses, God is also with Joshua. Or just as Moses was with God, so also Joshua is with God. And in the fourth chapter, in a portion we won't read, the people will actually say, clearly, the Lord is with Joshua just like he was with Moses. So this will be affirmed by the end of this chapter. But there's an interesting idea here is the act that I'm about to do, the Lord says, the Lord's about to do this impossible thing. The Lord's going to, the ark is going to move into the river of Jordan and the Jordan is going to stop flowing. That's his prediction. Is the moment the foot of the priest touches the water, the water of the earth is going to obey God. In fact, this is, it's interesting here. This is maybe one of the only times in the Bible where it's called the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth. It's right here. The Ark is going to move in and the water is going to stop. That's, that's what God is saying. And there's this idea, and he says, this is so that you can know that I'm going to t- give over this land, the land of the hit, all those ites, right? Those seven nations. Those lands of those seven peoples I'm going to give to you. I'm going to do something impossible. I'm going to do something that cannot be done so that you will know that I will do something with you in the future that's hard. That you would say in a time of weakness, I don't know if we can do that. Or you might say in a time of weakness, maybe we should just negotiate with these people. Do we have to get rid of them? Maybe we should just surround them and sue for peace. And the Lord's saying, no, 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 listen, I'm going to do for you something that's impossible. I'm going to bring you, I'm going to bring you from a life of wandering to a life of promise. I'm going to, I'm going to, the way I'm going to bring you through there is in a, in a way that no man has ever gone. I'm going to do that for you because one day I'm going to turn around and tell you to do something that's hard. That's what's happening here. Let's look at 14. So when, oh, before I do 14, let me just say something. There is this nature of storytelling that's taking place, which we don't have a lot of time to talk about, but um, this story is being told in a, in a certain sort of way. So, for one, the chronological details of the story are less important than giving you certain images. So, as you read, read this, if you were to read 3 and 4 carefully, carefully, you might actually find yourself more confused than if you just read it quickly. Because you'd say, wait a second, didn't the priests already come in the water? Or didn't they go out of the water? Or when they were just told to select a man from each tribe, didn't that happen earlier? Okay, you're going to hear things like that. The Hebrew is not really worried about the accurate sequencing of the details. There were, the author is trying to give you these images. Okay, And one of these images is, watch the ark. Okay, I've talked about that. The second image you're going to feel is the buildup for what happens when the priests step into the water. Can you imagine being a priest? Imagine being a priest. And Joshua says, I want you to walk towards that river and just keep walking when you get there. Trust me. And so we should feel that. We should feel that. And so you're going to get to this point in this reading here 
where just like in a show where there's a climax, you ever have somebody who's telling you a really good story and everybody's leaning in on the story and he says to you like, and so I reached and I grabbed the door and I was about to open the door. And you're like, uh-huh. And he says, and you know, it's like the doors with the panels on it. Like the wooden panels, you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. So he's like, oh, yes. Yeah. So anyway, I reached to open this door and it's like a big door. And you're like, enough about the door already. Like, open the door. Get in the door. And he's like, oh, okay. Well, this, they're going to do that here. You're going to feel that, okay? And so, anyway, I like it. I want you to feel it with me. Okay, so here we go. Verse 14. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Now, the Jordan overflows all its banks to the time of harvest. You see what he's doing? He's, you're like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And he says, just, just so you know, it's not a little river. It's not a little river. It's harvest time. This river, we would estimate this river might maybe as far as a mile wide right now. Okay. The deepest digs we've done on Jericho, Jericho is the oldest known city we've ever excavated on the planet, okay? And the deepest digs on it, the deepest walls, way down at the bottom, I mean, it's been a city thousands of years for different reasons, but as far down you get, the walls as old as 9,000 BC. And it's the theory for that wall, some of it, is that it would protect from the flooding of the Jordan. It gives you the impression that there were times at flood season that the Jordan would really widen out. So you're thinking, as they're about to step in, and the author goes, and listen, there ain't no small river now. This river is beast. Okay, back to the story. He says, verse 16, The waters coming down from above stood up and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those flowing down towards the Sea of Arab at the Salt Sea were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan and all Israel passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Can you just imagine being, being a young kid in Israel? You're growing up as an Israelite and all you heard growing up was that great time, a long time ago where God parted the Red Sea and you came out of Egypt. You know, you'd sit around the campfire and there... Uncle so-and-so would go off again telling you about the time when the Red Sea, you know, you kids don't know what it's like today. Back when I was a kid, the Lord parted the Red Sea. Well, he did it again. I just think it's awesome. Like how, how deep of an, how deep this would carve in on the hearts of Israel. That God is still my God. And he's doing what no one else can do. This is not possible. God is doing the impossible right now. He could have. He could have led them up a few miles up the river to cross the ford. He could have done that. He's showing off to the people. He's saying to them, I am reminding you who I am. Because I'm going to call you to do something. I just want us to dwell on that for a second. 
particularly, you know, why start a book with be strong and courageous? We, we said, listen, the promise of God still exists. The Lord says to Joshua, I'll be with you wherever you go, so be strong and courageous, to which we would say, well, if you're going to be with us, why do I have to be strong and courageous? There's irony in that statement. Lord, if you're going to be with me, why do I have to be strong and courageous? It's happening again right here. I'm going to part this river so that you can know that this, you can go take out the Hivites and the Jebusites and all of these people. I'm powerful so that you know that I'm powerful. The fourth chapter has a, has a unique goal in it. In the fourth chapter, there's, there's a lot being done about the memor- how do they memorialize this moment. So the beginning reading, the first reading of the fourth chapter is what God, what God intends. I want you to get these stones. Here's what I want you to do. And then there's a middle reading, which we're going to bypass. And then there's the final reading, which is the summary. So they did that, and this is what it means. And... and um, I want us to sit in this for a bit. So let's read 4, verses uh, 1 to 10. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place the feet... uh, excuse me, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly and bring them over with you and lay them down in a place where you will lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel whom he had appointed a man for each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Let's take a picture. This is what he's saying. Capture this moment. Now, these are great moments. I will confess to you, though, the darker side of me would say, Lord, why do I need to take a picture of this? <laughs> You're not going to do this tomorrow? You know, we don't take pictures of ourselves eating lunch every day. We don't take pictures of regular things. We don't, you know, you don't get dressed in the morning and your spouse doesn't say to you, make a memorial, for thou hast a Put on thou apparel. That doesn't happen. It happens every day. You'd be like, what are you doing? We don't memorialize things that always happen. So the fact that God would do this great and impossible thing and then say, it's a sign to you. This one thing is a sign to you. This memory is going to have to sustain you. Think of that. I want you to be sustained by this memory as you go on in life. That's what's happening here. And not like just you who saw it. Generations to come. Generations will come and go who will not have seen anything like this. 
and yet it's supposed to still matter to them. God is going to do something really big and impossible that no one else can do at a really important time. He's going to take people who are not sure even still at this present moment, are they in the promise or out of the promise? He's going to take them from out of the promise into the land of promise. He's going to do that in a way that no one else can do. He's going to take them from a life of wandering to a life of promise. And on that moment, he's going to say, you need to forever remember that I did this for generations to come. It reminds me of Passover. In the book of Exodus, right as they're getting ready to leave Egypt, the Lord says to Moses, hey, this is what I want you to do. I want you to get a lamb and I want you to kill that lamb and put blood on the door frames. And I want you to prepare the lamb and I want you to eat with your sandals on and I want you to eat with your family in the house. Make sure they're all in the house. No one's outside of the house. I want you to do this. And you're going to do, you're going to have a meal like this every year at this time of year for the rest. This will be a memorial to you so that one day when your sons or daughters say to you, why is it that we do this? You say, because on this night, God took us up out of Egypt. On this night, God did what no one can do. He did it. That's why you're going to do it. Forty-some years later, they're at the Jordan. The same thing happens. Why are we doing this? Because one day your kids are going to see this pile of stones and they're going to say, Dad, Mom, why are these piles of stones here? And he's going to say, it's the time where you tell them the story of when God did what is not possible to bring you into the promise. This is what we do at the Lord's Supper. Any parent here, have you ever had a child say, what are you doing? Why do you eat crackers? Why do you have little cups of grape juice? Let it be a memorial to you. So you can say, we do this because we remember the time when the Lord did what is not possible to bring us from a life of wandering into a life of promise. Tell that story. Do this in remembrance of me. Memorialize it. Let's close the reading here. Verse 19. The people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month. By the way, you know when that is? It's four days before Passover. They were about to celebrate Passover. They came up on the 10th day of the first month and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the, to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. Listen to verse 24. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Why did he do this? So that all the people on the earth might know that the Lord your God is mighty and that you might fear the Lord. So I want us to think about this for a moment. 
I want us to think about the notion that the Lord in caring for his people and in bringing them into the promise does some things he does often. Some subtle things he does often. But there are some things he does only once. And then he says you need to remember it. He's commanding the people to remember it in such a way that the memory continues to have power generations down the way. This memory has to have power in your children's life and in your children's children's life. He's saying there are some things the Lord does where he's only going to do them once. He's only going to cross over one time. There's really no other reason. You're not going to go down the Jordan every Wednesday for the Lord to open it up just to remind you he's powerful. No, he does it one time. The one time he's bringing you from a life of wandering to a life of promise, he's going to do it that one time. The same way, why, why, why do we see, we don't need to see the Lord crucified again for us just to know he died once for our sins to bring us from a life of wandering to a life of promise. And now we're told you need to remember that, recollect that, make that a memorial, tell your children. In other words, we need the obligation to the people of God is to adopt this memory as their own. You know, there's, there's memories that I, are not actually mine, but they're in my family that I have to choose to adopt. And this is part of my life. He's saying that. He's saying, this memory for ages to come, you need to continually adopt this as your memory. You need to make it yours. There's a strange thing about... Uh, <clears throat> the ark and the power of God. You know, when they crossed the Red Sea, the Lord used his staff. Moses used the staff. Part of me was thinking this week, well, why doesn't Joshua just reach in the box and use the staff? Why did the Lord not say that? Why did the Lord say to Joshua, Joshua, reach into the ark, get out the staff, hold the staff up, and I'll part the water. And I think the reason is, is because we, they know more about the Lord. When they came out of Egypt, they didn't know anything about God. All he was was power. That's all God was, his power. But by the time they're crossing the Jordan, he's power, he's provision, and he's law. There's, God is full. There's all these ideas about the Lord. He has a way for their life. He's fed them in the wilderness for 40 years. He's done all these things for him. But what I find interesting is, once they cross the Jordan, very quickly in their lives, the, our God is powerful is going to start to fade. And life is going to get hard. And very soon in life, our God as our provision is going to appear to fade. In fact, the very next chapter says, on this day the manna no longer fell. So the Lord is moving them from sort of the rawness of his power and the rawness of his provision. That God is from heaven doing these things to a life where the power and the provision of God is coming from faithful remembrance. That your, your, your ability to be connected to the power and the faithfulness of God has to do with your commitment to remember what he has already done for you. And that's what I want us to end with. I want us to end on this question. Is Are there ways that you need? If you think about your life, areas where fear or weakness seem to predominate, areas where you're having difficulty gaining victory or where the strength and courage are just so hard to find, I want to ask, 
Have you remembered, have you held in memory and memorial what God has done for you? What he's, what he's really done for you? Is that, is that there for you? Or do you need to? Do you need to sort of in your own soul set up stones and say, I'm going to come back to this? Because in our lives, the power of God comes through faithful remembrance. We're going to sing a, a song together uh, now. And in the song, there's this line. And the line of the song is, And I raise my Ebenezer which Ebenezer's Hebrew for a stone of help. What the writer is saying is, is, I'm choosing to remember this moment. And that's what I want to call us to, is, is to being a people of remembrance. And to trust that what God has done once, that is impossible, he's done so that he can call us to do what's, what may be in front of us that's hard. Let me pray. Lord, As we come out of the word and into prayer, I, I call before my life, and Lord, may we call before our own lives the places that are not yet as you would have them to be. Not the places that you've not yet called us to, Lord, but the places that we feel called or convicted to be where we, because of our own fear or weakness, we don't stand strong there. We don't stand straight. And in these areas, Lord, I pray that we would remember what you've done for us. That we would remind ourselves that God has done the impossible. He's done what cannot be done so that we can turn to him and do what he's called us to do. And so we confess in prayer, Lord, that you sent your own son to this earth who did what we cannot do. He lived a perfect life. He offered perfect forgiveness, Lord. And he died, was buried, and resurrected. He did what is impossible for us. And Lord, we, in faith, will follow that. We will cross that river on dry ground one day, Lord. We will cross from this life to the next, from this life of wandering to a life of promise, because he has preceded us and done what we cannot do. And so now, Lord, may it serve as a sign, an indelible sign in our minds so that we can do what he's called us to do in victory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.